welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name's Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and today's guest is Adrian Mulligan. I don't know where we met first actually, Adrian. I think we connected prior to the first Australian conference and you, you reached out to us or was it before then? I can't remember. Um, but welcome Adrian uh, from Enterprise License Solutions. How are you doing? I'm very good, Martin. Glad to be here. How are you? Yeah, good. And just so that our listeners can place you, you are based out of. Um, you're not quite. You're not quite in Sydney, are you? No, I'm in sort of rural New South Wales in a town called Orange. You can probably tell that by my strong Australian accent. <laughs> so, please, can you explain your accent and your journey? Um, so yes, I'm originally from Northern Ireland a long time ago. I've left there about. Ooh, 27 or so years ago and I've lived I've lived places like London and Amsterdam and various places for a while but I've been in Australia for most of the last last 23 years um, and most of that time was in Sydney um, but the traffic and the the pace of life was just getting too much in in Sydney with three kids so we made the major move to a town four hours west of Sydney called Orange um, where um, I, I worked for the gold mining industry of all things, doing some IT for gold mining industry for, for a couple of years. Um, that got into a lot of trouble when the gold price slipped. Um, so since then, that really sort of gave me the, the carrot and the stick to set up my own, my own little business, Enterprise License Solutions, which I've, been, which I've been running from here ever since. And what led you to start that in the first place? I mean, we'll come on to exactly what you do um, day to day and what you do for your customers, but what led you to that point? I, I look, was looking at your LinkedIn profile prior to this um, podcast and see you've got a, some, some practical hands-on experience in various different roles. What, what led you to the, to the business? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, one, I think I, I do have a passion for it. So something that's bamboozled me in my almost 30 years in IT was, was always coming across this pattern of, of, basically customers paying way too much to IT companies, particularly software companies, for services or for products or for software that they were never really realistically going to use. Um, and always being actually leveraged by that vendor because there was always something they were using that they weren't paying for. Um, so through all of those roles, through you know hands-on technical roles that I did for about the first 10 years, um, or the various management roles that have done anything from strategic planning to um, project management to enterprise architecture, I always had a, a real passion for right-sizing the software spend and getting proper asset utilization there and getting really compliant so that you were in a much stronger position with your vendor. To me, if you're not doing that, you're just not doing the basics of managing IT and you will always be beholden to your vendors, which means you can never do the right things by your customer. And do you mind sharing this might be a bit personal i don't know if you do want to share this but as an entrepreneur myself I'm, I'm always interested on how you physically made the leap so did a contract come to the end or did you just decide to go and do this thing or how, how did you come to own a company and be running things in the sam space yeah that's that's the that's the great question and you know i'd looked over the precipice a few times earlier in my career and you know, you look at how many startups fail and how much risk there is. And then you look back at the job that you mightn't like that much and realize that, well, a paycheck does come in every month. <laughs> no matter how bad it is, a paycheck, a paycheck comes in every month. 
or if they want to get rid of you, then they need to write you redundancy checks. You get all the security there. Um, so I guess I found myself in a situation where we'd taken a risk of, of moving to country New South Wales, where there's not a lot of jobs. Um, the gold mining thing I was doing here, I really, really, really enjoyed. But when the gold price slipped, that was that. And if you weren't really a miner, which obviously I wasn't, um, you were gone. We didn't want to move the kids again. Um, the, the only other real sort of IT jobs out here weren't all that, all that attractive. Um, so I guess there was that sort of um, stick piece. Um, the carrot piece is that I've always really wanted to do it, but I needed more of an incentive to do it. But it's, it's so exciting to actually do. And yes, you're not, you, you're not guaranteed a paycheck and you've got responsibilities, but it's so exciting to do. But the key thing actually came back to um, get this. I, 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 um, I saw an interview many years ago with Adam out of Adam and the Ants, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of Adam and the Ants, not opposed to them, but not, not, a, not a big fan, fan of them. You um, remember them from the 80s. Anyway, um, he'd been just an ordinary bloke, became a superstar in the 80s. And somebody asked him, so how do you go from being just an ordinary person um, to a mega rock star? And he said, you just start being one. So you just start <laughs> being a pop star. So, and I'm not comparing myself in any way to some, you know, to famous rock stars or anything, but I think it's, it's the same patterns through life, you know, so, so um, just start being it and pe you start believing you're it and other people start believing you're it. And that's what I couldn't believe. You go out and you start presenting to customers and they're interested and before you know, they've signed up for something. The most amazing thing is you send them an invoice and they pay it. They actually pay it. And sometimes they ask you for more work. So, so that's really, really thrilling and satisfying. What does the company actually do? We're very deep and we're very broad. So everything in the space of IT asset management. Um, so we do um, contract renegotiation, contract negotiation, compliance, audit support. Um, we assist with ITAM and SAM and HAM implementations. Um, we assist with um, strategic vendor reviews and with uh, vendor rationalization, vendor negotiations across the board. Um, things like cloud migrations or new projects where there's going to be a significant change in, in IT spend. Um, the greater part of that's towards the left of what, what I just said. So a, a lot of that's in contract negotiation and compliance and audit support, but certainly branching out into all sorts of, uh, all sorts of other areas. And some interesting stuff recently in um, assisting with uh, value realization around infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, even software as a service. Um, and in terms of depth, we're totally vendor agnostic, so we, we have a very unique and thorough methodology, and we can apply that to basically any um, software vendor. So whereas, again, probably 80% of our work is in the big guys, Microsoft, Oracle, um, SAP, IBM, uh, VMware, and so forth, we've got a long tail of much smaller vendors, um, you know, from Adobe to um, uh, Bentley, Autodesk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a very wide framework. Um, and my model is basically, I, I did have some full-time employees, but that was way too much like being grown up and, and way too stressful um, trying to pay, those, to pay those guys every month. And it's just not possible to get people who are multi-talented like that across all of that, all of that um, matrix. So my model now is just, I've got a network of the best people on earth in the various domains. Um, I basically, or ELS runs a front-end methodology. We do uh, marketing and sales and front-end delivery and very thorough methodology. We make sure that everything that goes out to the customer is totally um, peer-reviewed. Um, and then basically I've got a network of great people around the world. Um, I've got some resources in India I can contract to. I've got people all across Australia. I've got some people in the UK. 
Um, I've got one guy I think is currently in Taipei, um, but I can basically work with these people wherever they physically are from my little office in, in uh, Orange, New South Wales and get great outcomes for customers. Yeah. I, I um, In contrast to that, I got asked, it was actually by an Australian company. Um, they said, could you, uh, it was a large corporate with a brand name you'd recognize, and they said, um, can you recommend a somebody that can help with the following vendors uh, but we want somebody with a presence in every country on the planet and we want them to be independent. And I said, uh, no, because <laughs> uh, they, oh. don't, they don't exist um, yet. Um, yeah. uh, you, the only people with that reach are people that sell you licensing to. And, Absolutely. Um, and ultimately, they went with a partner that sold them licensing to and, and compromised their original demands because they wanted a body on every on the street in every country, which I think is a, a little bit old fashioned um, it is. and, and yeah. restrictive. Yeah. And it's the wrong, that's the wrong selection criteria to put first. You know, the top criterion is independence. I think that, you know, and, and the second one is experience and proven results. And, you know, a physical presence in every country is way down the way down the priority list as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just to explain things, we, we, um, we're recording this in early September and we're in the run-up to our Australian conference in November. That's our next big project at the ITM Review. And you very kindly spoke at our first Australian conference in Sydney. You then came over to, the, to present at our UK conference and, and we have a bit of a mix going on. And, and I think for the Australian conference this year, we've got a few speakers from the UK that are coming down all the way down to Australia. So mm. it's, a, it's a lovely to see people cross-pollinating. Um, and you'll join us again in 2018. Um, but what for the topic today, I really want to pick on um, a subject that you picked up at the UK conference. And if anyone can, if you go to um, SlideShare and dig out Adrian's slide deck, he's got a fascinating deck covering all sorts of topics in lots of detail. But there's one particular slide where you dig into uh, seven ways that companies are lured into overspending in their contracts. I just wondered if we could cover those and maybe cover those quickly in terms of what you're seeing in the market. Um, where where should we start with this? Where, what's the most common one, do you think? I think despite the, the, the move to as a service and subscriptions, which is a whole new can of worms, which, which we can cover, um, maintenance payments are still a great old cash cow for, for the software giants. Um, and it's still largely a void and wasted spend for for customers. I, th I think customers are still um, opting for it because they think it's an insurance policy, or even worse, sometimes they're 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 sort of morphing it into a subscription payment that they don't really understand. Um, but you know, traditionally, maintenance payments it's it's this I, I think quite vast commitment for. Um, two things that you may never get or may never need. So, so typically with most vendors, whether they call it software assurance or maintenance or, or, or something else, it entitles you to, to a couple of key things. One is to new future versions. They are simply not obliged in that. You, you might sign up for three years, but they're not obliged under any circumstances to actually release a new version, let alone a new version that you need or let alone a new version that's got any of your requirements met in it, or a new version that it is feasible to implement without huge cost, risk, and disruption to your business. 
Um, but yet you pay for these, you, you pay for this uh, sort of ephemeral thing, which may never happen under the doors. It's just not, not useful to you. Um, the second key thing you'll typically get in SS Microsoft is the support calls in there. Again and again and again, I see across the market, um, I go in and I challenge, why are we paying all this maintenance? And of course we need the support. Okay, so get me some stats and support. Uh, we don't have any. And we'll dig around for a long, long time and it's really hard to get stats. And you'll find shocking things like in the last three years, there's been one priority three call made, which was not resolved. Um, so I'll look at it in the cold light of day and go, well, we, we haven't done any upgrades. It's not possible to do upgrades. And they haven't released anything that you really want. And you made one priority three call and you've been paying maintenance for the last three years. And, and you know, hypothetically, you know, that's that's a couple of million a year for three years. Adrian, just to echo that, um, we're about to release some research with the campaign for licensing that looks into this. And the sort of headline is Probably. that two hundred, I think it's 250 billion is spent every year on support maintenance. And it simply doesn't face enough scrutiny. People are fearful mm. of switching off because they want to be able to point the finger at somebody. Um, I think it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a ripe area for optimization. Absolutely. And you, you're right on there. Just no one wants to be culpable. So if they're the person who authorized stopping maintenance payments and then something goes wrong the next day, that's their career, but which is less embarrassing than wasting tens of millions of dollars for the company. Right, so you've also got um, support calls with maintenance payments. What do we mean by that? Um, so that's that's the other thing that's typically bundled in with your maintenance payments, um, unless it's Microsoft where it's a separate agreement again. Um, and the, like I was just saying, um, it's again and again and again, when I dig into this with organizations, first, it's really vague, even who does it or how does anyone even make calls to the vendor? How do we get stats on that? The vendor can't supply them. We don't keep them. But I'll typically find they've made practically no calls for a number of years, only a small number of priority three calls. And sometimes we've actually sat down and worked out with the customer. So you haven't done any upgrades and you've made two priority three calls per year for the last three years and you paid several million dollars. So each priority three call being the only value that you've gotten out of this, whether they've resolved it or not, has cost you several hundred thousand dollars. Is that something you want to persist with into the future, or do you want to revise that model, particularly for something that's maybe a maintenance system that's going into, you know, um, overall sort of legacy status? Yeah, and even if you do have a maintenance contract and the vendor happens to cover that product, it's not necessarily that it can actually help you in the event that something goes wrong anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not, there's no real SLA, and the, there's an SLA in terms of answering the phone. But there's no SLA in fixing anything. And I've got to say, even in my, you know, over 10 years in, in hands-on work and my, my numbers of years in operations management, in all of the crises that I've ever gone through, there's not been one example. And no one's ever challenged me in this when I talk to anybody else who's been in the same position. I've never had one example of where the vendor helped us in a crisis. In fact, worse still, I've had them ring me up after a couple of days and try to sell me more services to get out of it. And they've forgotten about the actual maintenance contract. I have never found them useful in a crisis. I did speak to somebody, an end user the other day, and they were saying that they phoned IBM for support on a particular product. And IBM said, sorry, that's outside the scope of your agreement, but you can have the support and we'll have to backdate your maintenance for five years for you to get that support. It's like, okay, thanks. Thanks yeah. for that. 
that's really useful. Yeah, even worse, a call like that can just trigger a, oh, you were supposed to be paying this and here's your bill for five years. Right. You know, it's not even optional in some cases, and Oracle in particular can pull that trick. The third um, way that you're lured into overspend, and we're, I think we're seeing this in the SaaS world as well, which is um, the elevator only goes upwards. So you've got enterprise agreements that have mandatory true ups, but no true down. Yeah, um, you know, the classic is the, is the uh, Microsoft EA. So that only ratchets up um, during the course of a three year, um, three year contract. And I've seen situations where that has, that's, that has created significant um, wasted spend. So if the organization has changed significantly or their IT architecture has changed significantly, you know, three years is a long time in business now and three years is a long time in IT um, system lifecycle. Um, so when you're making a three year commitment, um, you cannot ratchet that commitment down. So if you're paying for a thousand units of something, let's say a thousand units of um, SQL Server, if something happens, which radically means that you um, no longer need those, you're obliged to pay for them for three years regardless. It really cannot be renegotiated. Um, in the subscription world, again, to stick with Microsoft as, as an example, um, the true up is monthly and the true down is annual. So it's, it's, it's a little better, but still, if, if it, you're the start of a year, um, you make significant ratchet up. And then for, for a multifarious reasons, um, you no longer need that capacity. You're paying for it um, for a year. And again, to, to, to ratchet that down, you have to take action. Your cloud provider is not really going to help you with that. You need to be across the stats, which quite often are, are difficult to be across or difficult to understand or it's not necessarily anybody's job. Um, but, you know, it's up to you to remember to ratchet, ratchet the thing down again. Yeah. I think the key word here is commit. People want to, the vendors want to commit. Don't they? If you commit more, mm. we'll give you a more aggressive price. And that that even goes as far yeah. as um, AWS or something something very modern and flexible. If the more you can commit, the more aggressive price you're going to get on a long term basis, which can yeah. paint you into a corner, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think people need to think about you know what really is the value of that discount, and if you're really to model it. In terms of probability and in terms of your flexibility, is it really the right thing to do? It's really the right thing to do for the vendors, um, and it, it certainly helps them with their Sarbi and Zoxley as well, because they can they can show that unless you you know um, go chapter thirteen or completely bust, then you are obliged to pay them um, those funds. No matter the customers are obliged to pay them those funds, no matter how well they're going. But isn't it the case that I don't have time to model the risk? I I'm a lot of this is just pushed through, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's a kind of a growth area for ELS, which I'm, I'm even looking at potentially productizing this. Um, and I, I really enjoyed reading AJ Witt's um, paper on um, IAAS uh, sort of monitoring and, and um, measurement systems. Like, there's so many vendors there that that's still a very nascent area. But I think from a service provision point of view, it's it's very... It's very nascent. I'm, I'm helping a customer right now size a platform as a service for um, a new cloud-based application. It's all going to be running on, on platform as a service in the back end. And a couple of service providers have given them quotes for commitments, which are based on nothing at all. They've made up numbers. So we're just starting to work through a process of how can we measure um, 
what what it's currently using and what we think it's going to grow to as it rolls out and give them a better idea of what is a sort of a a optimal balance of of cost and risk for a real commitment but it's still a very dark art as far as i can see and certainly the the um, xaas vendors are not going to help you not going to help you understand it any more clearly next area of luring into overspend i have is the new edition by stealth can you describe what that is and how we might defend against it mm. this is where um You've made the commitment. Sorry to keep harking. It must be because I've been doing quite a lot of Microsoft work recently. But um, the classic Microsoft example is you've gone from your perpetual um, office licenses. You were probably paying software assurance on those, or maybe you sweated them for a while and you weren't. But at least you always had the option of pull the plug, let's sweat the assets for a while. We'll just we'll just pay. We'll just continue using our perpetual um, entitlements. Um, you've gone across the 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 chasm and you've started paying for subscriptions, Office 365, all is fantastic. Um, your three-year EA comes to a close and your new EA starts up and the prices have gone up, you know, 40%. Um, well, they can do that to you anyway, but but you ask for a bit of reasoning around this. Um, you try to look at what you can see if your utilization stats and see that they're not great and people aren't using most of the stack. And the reason that they're charging you 40% more is that there's lots more functionality. Um, so I call that basically new edition by stealth. So you didn't ask for this functionality. In fact, it's probably only going to slow you down. Um, one thing about running a business properly and, and, and the danger more and more going into the 21st century is all this complexity. If I'm trying to run a business really well, and I certainly learned this working in things like heavy manufacturing or logistics or all sorts of businesses, you actually simplify things. You take all the moving parts out that you don't need. So I don't want to be given new functionality that I didn't ask for over which I've got no control. And I certainly don't want to pay for it. So again, this is a this is a um, vendor side pushing something onto you that you never asked for and billing you for it, regardless of whether you wanted it or not. Um, and hence, hence I'm calling that new edition by stealth. They may not call it a new edition, but effectively, it's it's new edition by stealth. Well, you've got um, you've got m more modern products like Office three six five and. Um, Microsoft have recently done a price jig there. I'm not. I'm not sure if it affects Office 365, but they've got a 10 percent increase in certain products, haven't they? Mm -hmm. And you could argue yeah. that they've got new products in there, new functionality, and they maybe they've got higher cost of sale because of inflation or you know whatever way you want to justify it. But then you've got people like IBM that are increasing 10 percent per year on a product mm -hmm. for which they're not developing anymore. And the supports probably that everything's been outsourced to India, so they've they've decimated yeah. their cost base, and yet the price increases are still in there. And they, they it's not it's not even under the mas masquerade of product features; it's just routine upgrade, isn't it? A routine increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's very right. It's very right. I'm not sure which is worst. Um, at least at least with a stable product, it it, it opens the options for third party support um, a lot more. And I think you know, obviously we're seeing Origina. Um, scoring some good runs in that space. Uh, IBM is probably vulnerable for that for lots of those sorts of products. Um, you know, stable sort of products that they've that they've acquired over the years, like Maximo and, and Cognos and so forth. And on that point, um, we're seeing a lot more traction and people investigating the software secondary software market in Europe um, because yeah. you can't transition old licenses to Office three six five, for example. You need to, you know cut those off so you could potentially sell them or do other things mm. 
uh, and I've heard that there's potential for doing that in Austra the Australian market because of your attitude towards um, exhaustion, like uh, IP exhaustion. Um, what's the view down there? Is, is anyone trying it in, in Australasia? Um, all right. So as far as I've understood, it wasn't possible down here to to um, sell your licenses. I've certainly had conversations with various folks in Europe um, over the last couple of years. I've spoken to actually some old friends I used to work with in, in the Netherlands um, have been having a crack at it. And I talked to some guys in um, in Denmark, they're based between Denmark and Germany, the name of whom, the name of which escapes me. Um, and when I talked to them again, they were of the opinion it wasn't possible in Australia because I was kind of just trying to explore that. Um, and I also had a couple of possible clients in in Europe who might have been interested, but I haven't really I haven't really taken that conversation any further. I would say it's not it, it's um, it's possible. It's just not been tried. Is is the answer? I think yeah. it's same, same for the US. It's it's possible, but nobody's put their head up above the parapet to try it, and not likely. Mm -hmm to get a corporate doing that unless there's some precedent. Um, I think the only reason it's happening in Europe is because somebody set a precedent and set an EU ruling. Uh, it's not to say that it's impossible in Australia, it's just somebody needs to burn some money trying it, don't they? Yeah, they do. It's probably reasonably, I'm, I'm sure you're going to meet some pretty stiff resistance. Um, and as I understood, even talking to these guys in Denmark, it's largely, I guess, almost being a broker between large organizations who no longer need them and sort of selling them into smaller um, organizations that were prepared to have very stable systems that didn't require maintenance. And the next way that we're lured into overspend is via license metrics. And you've said around units of measure do not reflect real utilization, let alone the business value. What, what do you mean by that? Can you expand? Can you maybe give an example of what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I've even gone through, particularly in audits and things, I've, I've seen um, builds of materials where there is no unit of measure. <laughs> you talk about setting yourself up for the next audit. So, um, and that, that's a really vulnerable piece. We say you bought two of these and they're going, well, is it servers, users, instances? What, what, what is this? So that, that's kind of question one is at least understand that there is a unit of measure and that the unit measure is properly defined, which often it's, often it's not. Um, but two, um, you know, the, 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 the typical units of measure for which you will pay is the number of CPUs or increasing the number of cores or the number of server instances or the number of users. But that does not tie back to how much money or how much value you're actually getting from the software or how much money you're actually making out of the software. Um, so um, occasionally, like something like um, Oracle Transportation Management, I think it's the, the metric there, though, which can be very hard to measure, is basically your freight, the value of the freight um, under management. So maybe that's a little bit more realistic. Um, I think there's been instances, I think it was at Oracle who charged a hotel company by just the number of hotel rooms. Um, I've, I've seen sort of SAP examples where they charge by overall revenues. You've made an enterprise commit, but instead of having all the complexity, you're simply paying some sort of pro rata rate on your annual revenue. Though, to be honest, I think those things tend to ratchet, ratchet up rather than ratchet down. Um, but I think it's probably a campaign for clear licensing or a campaign for clear value out of licensing thing where um, they should share in the success that is created by the software as a, as a catalyst for that success rather than getting paid for 
some sort of abstract technical um, metric which isn't really aligned to the business value at all. I mean, the, the campaign for clear licensing has always been about clear licensing. It's not to say that it had, can't be complex. It ha just has mm. to be clear. And I think when you do yeah. uh, something on profit or revenue, as long as that suits the business, then why not do that? I think um, at least it's clear and everyone knows where they stand. Um, so what if, what, if yeah. somebody, what if somebody is looking, and we'll, we've got a few more to cover, but what strikes me mm. is that this looks like an awful lot of work to do this if you're starting from scratch. And maybe something to consider is that you don't need to do this level of detail for every vendor. It's just your top 10, top 20, and yeah. that the renewals yeah. are going to be staggered over several years. So you, how mm. would you advise people putting a plan together for all of this? Yeah, well, the, the, this is one of the things that that we do when, when we first get a client, and new CIOs absolutely love this, we look at the entire uh, IT spend and in particular their entire software spend and we can with all of the experience that we've gleaned over the years we can quickly segment that into here's your opportunities to save money and here's where your big compliance risks are and here's where you're not aligning properly to your business direction and um, so first we can sort of segment it that way and then we can line that up to the renewal schedule and we can understand you know basically the different means and ways and, and approaches of renewal contract renewal used by the various vendors and the current set of tricks that they're trying to use to change um, and morph their their customers into the direction that they want um, so we can usually set out a three-year roadmap and i think it, you, you've always got to be looking three years into the future uh, another thing that constantly befuddles me and amuses me to go into an organization and they're waiting to the last second literally to deal with a microsoft ea renewal or an oracle maintenance contract renewal um, or an SAP contract renewal, and therefore they leave themselves um, no options because they're going in blind. Uh, what I mean by that is that they don't understand what they're getting for their current spend. So how can they decide to change that spend? So if they don't understand what they're getting for the current spend, they don't understand the asset utilization or value realization in any way for the current maintenance or, or software assurance payments, and they don't understand whether they're compliant or not. So in that situation, how can you make decisions? And they don't understand what they want to do with it in the future. So if you don't have those pieces of information and the vendor comes through the door and the vendor is doing this all the time to customers who are in a similar situation, your hands are tied behind your back and you're going to have to roll over. So you've got to take time. You've got to have an overall strategy across all of the vendors. And that has to relate back to how are you going to consolidate spend? How are you going to find duplicate spend and decide which vendor actually is supposed to supply which services and so forth? It, it, it ties right into your overall sort of enterprise architecture map and right into your overall business strategy. I think you should have at least a three-year roadmap for all contract renegotiation that aligns to all of those things. What did you think of uh, Matt Turner's session from BT at our UK conference when he did a 10-year plan and presented it to internal stakeholders to say, this is what you're going to spend over 10 years' time if you don't control things? What did you think of that? Is that too far? It's probably a bit far. I mean... Um, I, I think you need to stay credible. I, I actually, my first um, uh, IT job was with British Telecom in London. So I've got a little bit of uh, insight there. So um, British Telecom generally didn't know what it was going to be doing next week when, when, I, when I worked there. It's probably stabilized a bit more now. When, when I worked there, it was just moving from being public service to a, to a, a private enterprise. And that was a long, slow, that was a, a very painful journey, um, which created an awful lot of uncertainty. Um, 
yeah, I think at, at least three years, maybe you can stretch it a bit more. Um, um, you may have difficulty just being credible about what you think is going to be happening in 10 years' time. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't think, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, because the world changes next week, doesn't it, basically? But I think the value of what he was doing is basically saying over the course, if you're paying 20% maintenance on products, right. you know, 20% of product value for maintenance, over five years, mm. you're going to pay for the product again. Over 10 years, you're going to pay yeah. for it twice. So you would have paid yeah. for it three times. And look at the degree of the potential waste if you haven't got a handle on it. It runs into millions and millions. And I think it's quite yeah. powerful yeah. in getting people's attention. Um, I'm not to say it's not to say it's accurate, but it's per, but it's powerful for getting their attention in terms of senior management and whatnot. Um, so we've got we've got yeah. a couple yeah. couple of other um, ways that people are lured. The, the classic one that we see is is the bundles. What, what's a good example of a bundle mm. where people are lured into overspend? I'm drawn horribly back to uh, Microsoft. Microsoft 365 is a massive bundle bundle of things. So it's it's um, it's Office 365, which is itself a great big bundle with uh, uh, Windows um, 10 um, Enterprise uh, Mobility and Security Suite um, and so forth. So there's an awful lot of functionality in there. Um, and again and again, we, we even take the sort of basic stats we can get out of Office 365 and put them through a bit of an Excel template or a bit of a BI template. And we can usually show them that there's little to no utilization of lots of things, even in the Office 365 stack. Um, Yammer and so forth. So even in the subscription space, you still end up paying for an awful lot of software that you're that is not going to get used, or if it is used, is it really adding value to to the business? Or again, to go back to my lean business example, is it actually slowing you down? So by giving your users way more software than they need, is that really going to help productivity? You know, is that relevant to so many people that use Microsoft Office? If if you work at a production line or um, manufacturing or logistics or health. You need something pretty simple. You need very simple functionality because you're probably going to use a couple of times a week to fill in the spreadsheet or something. So the rest of it's, the rest of it's largely wasted. So I think we're, more and more we're being bedazzled by the idea of bundles without really having an idea of how do we think we're going to use it or how are we going to measure whether we actually get value out of it or not. And, and, and that's, that's real pure profit again for any organization. Selling you software that you're never going to use is by far the most profitable exercise possible. I was uh, stri strikes me of um, uh, the software platform Basecamp. I don't know if you've ever used that before. It's like a project management online system. And they have a very sort of brutal product development roadmap that basically says, we'll put it in there if it means something to our customers and they're going to get value from it mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, bloating it full of stuff every quarter just so that we can say that we've got new stuff basically yeah um, I, th I think yeah. you need a degree of confidence to do that and you need to be fairly bullish but um yeah. it's, it's a software vendor trap that they need to keep marketing they need to keep selling new stuff every quarter don't they yeah they do so the, the sales guys drive it but the, the sales guys never to be brutally honest I've, I've rarely met sales guys who care whether anything works out in the end they care about the front end the the seal they'll sell anything um, they, in fact, they, to be fair, quite often they don't really understand what success looks like beyond the seal. And final lure is um, the the threat of order exposure. How does that lead to overspend? Um, again, I'm seeing this again and again and again and again and again. The good, the, the old um, bad cop, good cop trick. So. Um, 
quite often the, an audit starts as a sort of a, a wolf in lamb's clothing. So they come in and they call it, they're just helping you out and they tap you on the back and or they might be giving you a spot of free consultancy or it's a SAM review or we want to see how we can help you out a bit more, you see. And then the bad cop comes along and I'm really sorry, really sorry, but we just found that you're not compliant in all these areas. And um, here's, uh, I'm sure you won't mind, but here's your invoice for $20 million. You've got 30 days per the, um, for the terms of your agreement. I'm sure this will help your career along if you could just uh, get that paid for me in the, in the next 30 days. Um, about a week later, um, a good cop rings you up and say, oh, that's, that, is, that is a bit unfortunate and we're sorry that our licensing rules are so unclear. I don't know why we've never got around to um, clarifying them. You'd, anyone would think it was in our interests. Um, but I tell you what, if you buy all this other stuff, we can probably do some sort of a deal. So we can make it look better. We'll still take the 20 million. Okay, it might only be 15 million. We'll, we'll shift a few things around. We'll do you a favor. Um, but if you buy all this other stuff that you didn't know you needed, we can make it all sort of go away and make you look a bit better. Tell you what, we'll throw in some free consultancy and some free training hours and some other stuff in there. But you're still giving them $15 million for largely nothing, straight profit, and you bought tomorrow's problems. So now you've got a whole other set of software that you don't understand how to measure, which your um, system administrators can now probably start deploying maybe slightly beyond your control and knowledge and creating the next set of problems. So this is why I say you and audits always just stand our ground and really challenge the findings and, and fight it, trench warfare it and fight it. And you can generally find that most things can be challenged unless they've left themselves really, really exposed. And even then, it's probably better to try and really settle it on your own terms rather than to buy yet more stuff that you don't need and another set of problems, which will come with yet more maintenance payments and subscription payments and other commitments into the future, which have not been modeled out under duress under a 30-day under a 30-day 30 30-day 30 time frame. And a perfect case study of that is um, if you look at, I think it came out in August, um, there's a legal firm in the US that's doing a class action against Oracle uh, because they said they were selling wonderful amounts of their cloud product when in fact they weren't. And one of the sightings mm. in the legal documents uh, in their sort of public um, class action is uh, the fact that they coerce people into using their cloud. For, for example, as just as you um, said, Adrian is, you know, oh, we spotted an audit exposure. If you buy our cloud, um, we'll mm. make that audit exposure go away. And then they can report back to their shareholders that they've sold some more cloud this month, when in fact they haven't. They've, yeah. just, they've just offloaded it yeah. um, to a poor suspecting customer who might have a audit exposure. Yeah. Fake cloud. Yes, yeah. And put they, that they surely, on the back of extortion. I, I always think that, that that has got to come home to roost at some point. It's, it's got to come well, back. It's already biting them. It's, I think I posted recently that they've started burying their cloud revenue in something else. Right. Um, yeah, they, they buried it in the same bucket as maintenance. Oracle is just not selling cloud, certainly outside of software as a service. No matter what Larry has tried to do to Amazon Web Services, he cannot take them down. And... Um, I, th I think it's just come to a point where it's a bit embarrassing for them and they don't want to report on certainly on infrastructure and platform as a service. Yeah. Um, and then even even what they are claiming, is, in the first teleconference after they, they buried that in their figures, they did verbally uh, admit a figure on a teleconference, said they wouldn't be doing so in future because their accounting would be too complicated to do it. Um, but then if you dug into that and how much of it is not real cloud at all, it's 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 just payments they've extorted from 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 audited customers yeah. who are not using those cloud services. Yeah. 
but there's got to be a a um, not only in terms of the competitive market, but also the revenue recognition has got to come back and bite them on the yeah. bum if they've sold all this stuff that's not being used. Um, yeah, so, so that, you know, some things, even if it's just wasted infrastructure, I don't know. It's just it's some. I, I just I can I can smell something coming basically. <laughs> It's a bit Sarbanes Oxley. I mean, yes. yes, they are. That's probably why they had to change how they're reporting it. I think that's why they buried it, because yes, it was useful for them to try and pretend they've got more cloud than they really have. But that's going to send a signal to investors that they've got more cloud than they really have, and that's Sarbanes Oxley territory. Yeah. So that's why they buried it. Yeah. What other motive could they possibly have? The a lawyer has come to Larry's office and said, "We just can't do this anymore." Yeah. Interesting times. It's nice to see the customers biting back and um, slowly but surely turning the ship. Um, Adrian, thank you. I, I know that we're calling you late in the evening, your time, uh, when it's way past beer o'clock. So um, thank you very much for going through these seven ways of luring into overspend. I'll post these. I'll post the slide from your conference so people can see a lot more detail in the show notes. So if you're listening to this on your podcast player, please check out the article and we'll share this in a lot more detail. And we can, you can meet Adrian at the Australian conference uh, in Sydney in late November of this year in 2018. Um, Adrian, thank you very much for joining the podcast. I'll let you finish your beer and um, look okay, forward to seeing you in November. Okay. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you in November at the conference. Why, 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 why